shift gears somewhat. I am going to provide um, sort of a country-specific story, uh, but I also want to situate it a little bit more broadly with an academic work relating to um, the role of the private sector in peace building. Um, there is, of course, as has been shown here today, quite a lot of academic work on the role of the private sector, both during conflict and uh, after conflict. Um, but there's one potentially crucial player that I think has been largely omitted from a lot of this work, and that's commercial banks. Um, Post-conflict countries often see the sudden emergence of commercial banks, both foreign and domestic, and what is usually a very weakly regulated market. But these banks take on a number of very important functions. They play both a direct role in economic development through lending and reform of the financial services <coughs> sector, um, overseeing public sector salary uh, payments, and also an indirect role in facilitating other peace-building tasks. So for example, disarmament, uh, demobilization and reintegration programs, and microfinance programs, which often depend on cash transfers, um, as well as uh, foreign investment. Um, so in spite of these sort of their proliferation and their wide-ranging activities in post-conflict settings, we have very little understanding of the actual effects of commercial banks in, in, these, in these countries. Um, on the one hand, they can contribute to financial stability of families and individuals. Um, they can help to combat illegal taxation and corruption. They can jumpstart economic recovery. And ultimately, they can help to buttress straight state authority. On the other hand, they can also have negative effects. Uh, so they can serve as instruments of money laundering and patronage. Uh, they can contribute to financial crises. They can deepen public debt um, and ultimately weaken faith in the government's ability to manage the economy. So just to provide a very quick example, Kabul Bank in Afghanistan was implicated in a massive insider lending scheme. And this drained the savings of tens of thousands of customers, forcing the government to raise taxes to bail out the bank. As one of the poorest countries in the world, and one where faith in both the government and the banking sector was very low to begin with, this scandal had very real consequences for both the country's economic recovery, um, as well as its attempts to strengthen and extend the authority of the state vis-a-vis non-state actors like the Taliban. Um, if the state is viewed as incapable of managing these processes, people are probably going to turn to other actors. Uh, and we see that in peace building. A lot of peace building efforts are basically aimed at repairing or rebuilding that state society relationship. And banks can, can disrupt that very delicate process. Um, but I don't want my message to be all doom and gloom. Um, and just as banks can play a negative role, they can equally support the reconstruction of the social contract between the state and the population in post-conflict countries. Um, Another example, in a number of post-conflict countries, public sector salary payments are handled by state officials rather than through banks. And this can lead to corruption and illegal taxation. And in many of these countries, the non-payment of salaries has led to mutinies and strikes by the military and by other sectors of the civil service. So in a, in a setting where tensions are already high, living conditions are already poor, and faith in the government is weak, weapons are readily available, this can present some pretty serious risks to peace. However, where governments in post-conflict states have contracted out the payment of civil servant salaries to commercial banks, civil servants have suddenly begun receiving their salaries regularly, in full, and on time. And I posit that that probably does a lot more for peace and stability than a lot of other peace-building efforts that we actually see in these settings. So this is a new research project. I want to investigate why, what are commercial banks doing? They're there, but we don't know a lot about what they're doing. 
Um, so what I'm going to do for the rest of the presentation is I'll talk a little bit more about the private sector and banks and post-conflict settings in general, and then I'm going to share some anecdotal evidence um, from the Democratic Republic of Congo where a bancarisation or bankerization program, um, like what I just described, saw the payment of all public sector salaries, including the police and military, outsourced to private commercial banks. Um, so just to situate this a little bit more broadly in the, in the academic literature, the role of the private sector during conflict is often viewed as sort of negative and predatory. Private companies can take advantage of the sort of lawlessness and the lack of regulation that exists, um, and they make lucrative deals, they engage in exploitative practices, and sometimes they even finance and sustain rebel groups. Um, and this helps to uh, entrench unjust, abusive economic relationships and contributes to the continuation of conflict in, in worst case scenario. Um, by contrast, the role of the private sector in the post-conflict phase tends to be viewed in a slightly more favorable light. So of course the lack of oversight and weak regulation of the conflict period doesn't just disappear overnight. Um, and some private sector actors, of course, do take advantage of that. But there's also sort of a general agreement that the private sector can contribute to economic reconstruction, job creation, and attracting foreign investment. Uh, and all of those are viewed as key to avoiding the renewal of conflict. Um, and many peace-building activities like DDR, as I mentioned before, have economic components that are sort of built into them um, as a way of providing legal salaried alternatives to fighting and enfranchising disadvantaged or vulnerable groups like minorities, women, and displaced populations. Um, at the same time, economic programs focusing on trade and manufacturing or the services industry at the slightly more macro level are also thought to boost sort of the sustainability of peace by demonstrating these mutually beneficial economic interests to previous opposing groups and, war and warring parties uh, and also by demonstrating the government's ability to manage the economy and provide public services and promote prosperity. And then at the most macro level, foreign investment is obviously um, thought to help enhance the capacity of institutions, um, help to create a tax base, um, reduce state reliance on international aid, um, and assist the state in rebuilding key infrastructure, thus enhancing popular confidence in the state. Um, so in this way, the sort of return of the private sector is seen as a key indicator of recovery um, and the shift from sort of a more stabilization phase to more sustainable peace. Um, but as I mentioned before, we don't hear a lot about commercial banks here. We sometimes hear about central banks, but we really hear very little about commercial banks. And I think this is actually very surprising because a lot of what I just described about what is viewed as the positive role of the private sector in the post-conflict phase wouldn't be possible without... Um, financial infrastructure, creating jobs, enhancing reconciliation, building state capacity, all of these things, you absolutely need banks there to help, help these things happen. Um, so for example, employment generation requires transparent recruitment procedures, payroll management, payment mechanisms, um, and governments in post-conflict states need to sort of demonstrate the existence of adequate banking infrastructure in order to attract and absorb and effectively utilize foreign investment. Um, where those things are non-existent or transparent, as they usually are after conflict, the risk of salary non-payment or corruption or nepotistic and unfair hiring practices increases, uh, either by increasing material incentives for illicit rent-seeking or by reducing moral disincentives to them in light of perceived economic injustice. 
So banks are clearly very important in post-conflict settings. And if you look at the numbers of banks that are actually existing in these countries, they're actually not insignificant. They might not come in right away, but they're not insignificant. They are there. Um, so we know that they're entering post-conflict settings. Um, we just don't really know much about when they enter, why they enter, and what kinds of banks enter, and equally what will defer, deter them from getting involved. Um, so before I turn to the Congo case study, I'm just going to briefly outline some of the challenges and opportunities for commercial banks in peace-building settings. And I'm going to start with challenges, and you're probably not surprised to hear that these are quite formidable. Um, so first of all, the banking sector may be weak or non-existent in post-conflict countries. Uh, any banks that do survive the conflict might have weak capital bases, um, severe capacity deficits, and they're faced with a very risky environment for providing credit. Second, if banks do manage to open or reopen and start operations, um, they may be reliant on other actors who equally suffer capacity deficits and operational challenges. In particular, they might rely on the government for particular inputs, um, and they may not receive fees for their services in a timely manner. Um, third, and this is a pretty important one, there may be a very serious lack of banking culture in post-conflict countries. Many war-torn countries have cash-based economies, either because they never had well-developed and well-entrenched banking systems, or because they switched to cash during the un uncertainty of conflict. Um, so the population will be unaccustomed to and therefore skeptical of things like bank accounts and deposits and savings and credit. Um, fourth, infrastructure can be a very serious obstacle. Getting banking services to remote areas or areas where there was a lot of destruction isn't easy. Um, many of these places will lack electricity um, and that makes it difficult to operate in the sort of modern um, digitalized banking sector. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, security is usually an ongoing obstacle. There are often still pockets of violence after conflict has technically ended, um, and so banks face a huge disincentive to set up operations and transport assets and cash around a country um, if there are extreme levels of danger. On the other hand, there are some not insignificant opportunities for banks. Um, so first of all, post-conflict countries constitute huge untapped markets for banks. Um, there are customer bases there that just simply haven't been claimed by anyone, and banks can take advantage of that. Um, secondly, they can provide banking services not just to individuals, but also to companies, um, both domestic and foreign, that are looking to start or restart operations in these countries. And third, while profits will obviously not be immediate, as banking culture does set in, banks can begin to offer expanded services such as credit, lending, and mortgage instruments and things like that. Uh, and finally, and this relates a little bit more to peace building more broadly rather than to the profits of banks themselves, but banks can contribute directly to increased government income. Um, so, for example, if they provide payment services, um, they can help to increase transparency and reduce corruption. As more and more money gets to where it's supposed to go to, the purchasing power of individuals and families increases, and then they become more willing to invest in education, building new businesses, which will help to generate jobs, which will help to generate income. Um, so the government will see increased tax income and thus its ability to provide public services will grow. Now that's obviously very idealistic, it takes a long time, but that is the ultimate objective. We have to start somewhere. Um, so you know, banks can play, can play quite a major role in making that happen. So in light of all of that sort of background there, um, about what I think is a very important role for banks, um, but about how much we, how little we know about what banks are doing uh, in post-conflict settings. I'd like to turn to Congo um, and share some anecdotal evidence of a positive role for banks um, 
And in particular, um, in, in, in the example that I provided earlier about private banks being involved in the payment of civil servant salaries. Um, so both prior to and after its civil wars, Congo has had a long history of corruption. Public servants at all levels were accustomed and in many cases tacitly encouraged to help themselves, um, particularly in the civil service where salaries were embezzled and teachers and doctors, nurses, police, military personnel often went for months without being paid. And this led repeatedly to demonstrations and strikes and mutinies amongst public sector employees. Um, this situation was aggravated by the vast number of ghost employees on payrolls. So these are people who um, had retired or were dead or had simply been made up. They never existed at all. And in 2001, a major fraud was uncovered in the civil service that included the fabrication of over 20,000 non-existent employees. Um, this fraud was partly enabled by the near entire absence of a banking system. Uh, civil servant salaries were paid in cash when they were paid at all. Um, and each month, envelopes of cash were withdrawn from the central bank and ostensibly destined for civil servants around the country, and they just usually disappeared en route. Um, Civil servants weren't the only losers in this. When these envelopes of cash disappeared each month, the corrupt officials who had stolen the money um, usually sought to change it into US dollars. Um, so there was a rush on the foreign currency exchange market in Kinshasa, which led to a surge in the price of dollars and falling value for the Congolese franc, um, which led to sort of a generalized fiscal uncertainty and kind of economic distortion in the, in the country. Against this backdrop, um, in 2011, the then Minister of Finance and later Prime Minister, uh, Augustin Matata Ponyo, introduced the Bancarisation program that I mentioned, um, in which all civil servants, including the military, have their salaries paid into bank accounts rather than, rather than into cash. 15 commercial banks were contracted to undertake these <coughs> salary payments, and the government, for its part, was responsible for cleaning up the lists of employees in the process, it removed tens of thousands of fictitious employees from the list, and this already generated considerable savings for the government. The banks, for their part, um, opened bank accounts for all civil servants and ensured that salary payments were made on time and in full, either by bank transfer or in remote areas where there were no bank branches and often no electricity or road links in cash. Um, and they transported the, the money by plane, car, motorbike, boat, foot, any, any way that was necessary. Between the start of the program in 2011 and 2015, over a million bank accounts were opened. Um, this constituted, of course, a major expansion in the customer bases of participating banks. Um, Trust Merchant Bank, for one, uh, which is one of the banks that was involved, saw a 120-fold increase in the number of public servants who bank with it. Um, and the banks receive a small fee per transfer and then a slightly larger fee when the transfer involves taking cash to some remote destination. Um, the bancarisation process has not been without difficulties. Um, first of all, as described, numerous officials had benefited personally from the previous system, uh, and the regulation of payments has sort of shaken up corrupt networks that have very deep roots in government offices. Um, and so this means that individuals who are used to these lucrative monthly incomes of, you know, 100 thousand US dollars or illegally of illegally stolen money were suddenly faced with the reality of their actual salaries of you know $180 per month or, or less. Um, so not surprisingly this ruffled quite a lot of feathers and Matata Ponyo and several others who worked with him on this program um, received death threats and other physical threats. Um, and there was even one report of a suicide of somebody who had you know lost lost so much of his illegal income. 
Um, second, working with the government, despite its own initiation of the program, uh, has also proven difficult. Um, the government often falls into arrears on its payments of fees to the banks, um, and this is a delay that the larger banks can absorb, but the smaller ones sort of struggle to manage. Um, and in addition, the government for a long time failed to finalize that list of public services to be paid. So there was always a little bit of uncertainty for the banks about exactly how much they needed to pay and exactly how much credit they could, they could provide and, and so on. Um, third, the banks have experienced difficulties relating to the physical transport of money, um, and this is owing largely to insecurity in the country. Um, so some areas continue to simply be too dangerous for the banks um, to reach and in remote locations where there's little state security um, or UN peacekeeping troop presence, there have been violent attacks against bank convoys carrying cash. Um, there was one particularly brutal attack in South Kivu province in the east in 2015 where two staff of Trust Merchant Bank and 11 Congolese soldiers who were escorting their convoy were, were killed and the money was stolen. Um, in spite of those challenges, there have been a lot of positive effects. Um, so first of all, civil servant salaries constitute approximately 40% of government spending. Um, so the elimination of corruption and waste has saved the government huge amounts. Um, the revision of employee lists in particular has contributed to significant savings for the government. Um, and this, you know, savings that easily cover the fees that they need to pay to the banks for those cash transfers. So between 2012 and 2015, the government saw 27 billion Congolese francs in savings, that's $29 million, which, you know, for an advanced industrialized economy is not much, but for a country like Congo, it's, it's a significant amount. Um, and especially for a country that's trying to rebuild and stabilize after, you know, decades of dictatorship followed by war, um, this is, you know, this is a welcome additional addition to state coffers. Uh, second of all, of course, Employees themselves are really pleased with this, um, where they used to receive a fraction of their salary or none at all, they're now being paid on time. And according to one of the banks, um, they're often, and I quote, surprised to see what they actually make. Um, that's how little or infrequently they were paid previously. There is still distrust in the banking system. Um, most civil servants withdraw their entire salary in cash the day it's deposited into their bank account. Um, but slowly, as they become accustomed to the fact that the, the money will show up once a month on time, the same amount, um, that's likely to, to diminish. And as a culture of banking um, takes hold, you know, we'll start to see more savings and, and borrowing and more confidence in the banking system. Um, third, and I think importantly, regular payment of salaries um, isn't just contributing to increased confidence in banks, but also in the state itself. Um, as a reliable and supportive employer that pays its employees. Um, the World Bank had conducted a report a few years ago and it noted that the irregular payment of salaries in Congo had a hugely negative effect on, quote, motivating civil servants to work more and better and raise their pride in serving the state and the public. Um, and so by, you know, sort of countering that, by showing that the state is actually a good employer that pays its, its workers, um, state society relations are slowly going to start improving and state institutions will become more resilient because the people who work for them actually feel proud to work for them and want to try to do a better job. Um, so that's, and that's something that's I think quite critical in the aftermath of conflict. I mean that's ultimately what a lot of peace building activities are trying to do is to um, increase that confidence in the state to look out for everyone in the country. 
And then finally, for their part, the banks that are involved are mostly enthusiastic about the program. Um, you know, the fees that they receive aren't currently, they don't currently represent a huge amount of profit for them, but most of them are actually quite um, sort of positive that over time this is going to increase and allow them to start introducing other kinds of banking instru instruments and services like payday loans and mortgages and so on. Um, and they think there's going to be a lot more market opportunities for them over time. So they're, they're sort of in it for the long haul here. Um, so just to conclude, um, you know, I think the, bank, the bancarisation program in Congo is a sort of refreshing story from a country where the news that we hear is almost always negative. Um, now, I'm not saying, of course, that all bank activities in post-conflict settings are positive. The Cabo Bank uh, example that I mentioned before um, was clearly very um, harmful, and there are similar stories from countries around the world. Um, in the case of Congo, of course, the progress, progress is going to be slow. Um, it has taken incredible political will on the part of a few key government officials um, to push through these reforms. And unfortunately, um, tech, you know, technocratic officials like that in post-conflict settings often find that their political careers tend to be relatively short because they're surrounded by so many powerful people who have a lot to lose. Um, Still, I think it's clear that commercial banks can play both positive and negative roles in peace building, uh, and I think this is something that really merits further investigation. So this presentation is also partly a sort of plea that we need to um, not forget some of the actors in our peace building study um, that, we've, that we've sort of neglected up till now. Um, you know, we, we just can't say at this point under what circumstances banks are playing positive and negative um, roles in building and sustaining peace. So um, I, I hope to do some of this work myself. Uh, stay tuned. Um, maybe at a future Ox piece I'll have a little bit more to say on the matter. Thank you very much.